Welcome once again to the second wave of Quarantined Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Just a little note, I have been uh, working very hard and will continue to have to work very hard for the next couple of weeks, so I have not had a chance to get to that uh, written essay about the history of vibrators, but I have not forgotten about it, and I do still plan to, at some point, get to it. And so once I actually do that, I will let you know if you haven't already uh, gotten frustrated and learned all about it yourself. So tonight we are going to start again with a infectious disease update, because that seems to be all we talk about these days. Um, <laughs> I was having a conversation with someone the other day about how I, uh, having studied history, kind of knew that uh, the kind of events that are happening now were going to be happening at some point in the nearest future when I was younger. I was just really hoping they wouldn't uh, happen until, you know, a couple more decades from now. And also, uh, longtime listeners will know that my least favorite thing in the world, as far as things that I'm actually like actively scared of, are infectious diseases. And oh boy, the last couple of years have been uh, stressful to say the least when it comes to that. So uh, let's talk Omicron. It continues to be a big problem across the U.S. and in many other nations still. Uh, Hospitalizations are up fourfold from the lull in April. And so the current seven-day rolling average is nearly 6,300 hospitalizations, with around 37,000 people currently hospitalized. Now, part of this is because many people have not even sought the first booster uh, or just haven't been vaccinated at all. As we know, there's still a ton of people in this country who have not been vaccinated at all. And, um, you know, this is really, really frustrating. Uh, the Biden administration has now announced that it has scrapped the idea of rolling out more of the current booster and is instead pressuring vaccine manufacturers to have the new bivalent booster available by, say, mid-semester. Which is, of course, right after I am supposed to be on vacation and having to go to a conference in Florida. So um, I would say pray for me, but obviously I don't <laughs> believe in that. But um, if you believe in it and you want to pray for me to not get COVID while I am in Florida, uh, please, please feel free to do that. And I will uh, be happy that you have done that for me. <laughs> even if I don't share your beliefs. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, uh, I am, I am unhappy about this. Uh, And so basically 
they uh, said that they feared that confused messaging would further erode trust in the vaccine if two separate boosters came out in quick succession and that people would not understand how to wait to be reboosted if they got a booster now. And I sort of understand that, but I also think like this second booster is not new. It's been available to people who are 50 and older for some time now. And uh, I also just think that they should have left it up to people to decide, especially when there are still doses of the current booster available that will now most likely go wasted because the people who haven't gotten any vaccine are not going to get vaccine. And the people who haven't gotten boosted, who are available to get boosted and who have access, I should mention that because there is still an access problem uh, that we are dealing with or not dealing with, uh, depending on uh, the moment. And so, yeah. Frustrated. That is what I am. I am frustrated because I was really hoping I could get that second booster before uh, the end of the month. And now I'm going to have to wait and I'm not happy. But anyways, clearly the White House is personally um, attacking me. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Okay. So Omicron still a thing. Uh, The B5 variant seems to be holding on, which is why I get why they want to hold out for the new um, bivalent vaccine. I just wish they would have given people a choice. Of course, that's, you know, a big issue nowadays in the U.S. On the monkeypox front, uh, please Oh, come on. <laughs> World Health Organization, get a new name for it. Of course, they'll say, they'll say that the same thing about that, that, oh, well, we won't want to confuse people. So we'll wait until this is over in order to rename the disease, which is probably exactly what they're doing. Ugh. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the disease has obviously become a full blown international outbreak now. Um, and in fact, we are now starting to see deaths outside of Africa. Now, overall, there are now over 25,000 cases worldwide. And the U.S. now uh, tops the list. We have outpaced Spain. And so uh, we now have over 7,000 cases as of today. And so all states except for Montana and Wyoming are reporting cases. New York is by far the highest, um, and we, we've known that since pretty much the beginning, that New York City especially has been a nexus. And so they've had more than 1,700 cases. California, Texas, Florida, Georgia, and Illinois all have over 500 cases each. Uh, as of the latest numbers, Massachusetts had 157 confirmed cases, And again, that's as of yesterday. It was updated um, on the 4th. The death toll is now at least 10. So most of those are in Africa where there are a few deaths every year from this disease. 
But um, so there are new deaths reported in Ghana and then outside of Africa in Spain, Brazil, and India. And so there had already been deaths in Nigeria and the Central African Republic. Some deaths were attributed to those with comorbidities that rendered the patients immunocompromised, but the two cases from Spain suggest that both patients had been otherwise healthy. Now, these deaths were due to encephalitis, which is a swelling of the brain, and this is a known side effect of trans of the um, infection. So this is a known complication that can happen, uh, not a side effect, but a complication. And so this is at least not something that is unprecedented, even as it is very unfortunate and um, sad that people are actually dying from this disease. And of course, one of the big issues continues to be that Getting the vaccine is extremely hard. And I know of people in my life who have had to basically watch their phone uh, all of the time to uh, wait for an alert where vaccines would be available for them to basically jump on getting a vaccine. Now, the Biden administration has finally assigned a task force to coordinate responses headed by FEMA's Robert Fenton, along with Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis, current director of the CDC Division of HIV Prevention. Now, he is apparently an expert on health issues affecting the LGBTQIA community. So um, hopefully that is a good sign. And um, obviously, uh, for all of its uh, glaring failures uh, and disappointments and uh, shortcomings, at least the Biden administration uh, is science um, amenable, unlike the previous administration. So hopefully this is going to be actually a useful uh, task force that will really help people get access to vaccines and, um, you know, free up dollars for research and things like that. Uh, just a note, the uh, White House press released about this. The first time they listed the acronym, they listed it as LGBGQIA+. <sighs> Can we please bring back the job of copy editor? <laughs> this is a complete aside, but I just, I cannot understand why we no longer believe in editing. Um, you know, people are fallible. People don't always write perfectly. And that's why you have people whose specific job it was to correct those mistakes. And I mean, this is a White House press release, for goodness sake. Um, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, you know, I'm reading the New York Times and almost every article has at least one or two typos in it. It's just, it's a little thing, and I know it's a dorky, super privileged thing for me to be worried about typos on the internet, but it does still upset me. And I feel like, you know, copy editors were an important job, and they were one of those people who I think that, you know, we thought, not we, but 
uh, the collective uh, corporate we thought that they could basically get rid of because everything is editable now on the internet. But I I feel the lack of them <laughs> every day. Um, okay, weird uh, soapbox aside over. <laughs> So um, let us return now to the same topic and turn to uh, New York once again and talk about the return of polio. Deep cleansing breath. (laughs) Now, the outbreak is in the same county that has struggled previously uh, with a huge measles outbreak, which is also a very infectious disease, much like polio. Um, and so polio is very infectious and most people don't realize they even have it because it doesn't affect most people. Um, and so it spreads very rapidly. People are very contagious when they have it. And it's just like measles, except of course measles, a lot more people actually have symptoms. Now, unfortunately, this can be, in my opinion, traced to, frankly, religious extremism. Now, I am happy to ignore people's religions and let them worship as they wish, as long as they're not hurting others or trying to legislate their religion into law, like, once again, uh, the clearly Christian, theocratically driven decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. In this case, it's some Orthodox Jewish people's objection to vaccination. Now, of course, I again don't want to paint a broad brush of all Orthodox Jewish people. Some of them do have, um, you know, different opinions about vaccinations. The vaccination rate is not zero among this community. Um, and so I don't want to paint a broad brush in that respect. Um, and I also don't want to paint a broad brush about just Orthodox Jews. Lots of other religious groups have similar issues with vaccine uptake. So I definitely don't want to single them out, except in the fact that we really need to have a better, um, I don't know, there needs to be some way to convince people that like, you know, vaccines are made by people who were created in the image of God. And I don't know. I don't know how to do it because obviously I'm not religious. So it's hard for me to understand it. But I just wish there was a way that we could convince people that vaccines are a good thing that are created by good people who want to help you have a better life, especially for your children to prevent childhood illnesses that are completely preventable with vaccination. And so, yeah, uh, the thing that I really cannot stand is putting others, especially children, in danger due to any kind of ideological fundamentalism. So obviously, some of the people who are against the COVID-19 vaccine aren't particularly religious. They are politically motivated in a extreme ideological way. Um, and so for instance, as of June 15th, 2021, the community had just a 17.8% vaccination rate for COVID-19. Um, so again, some people did take it and, um, I absolutely applaud those people. And I think that, um, I wish that they could, uh, 
convince their fellows, because uh, I'm certainly not going to convince anyone in that community, uh, being an outsider and not sharing their beliefs. And so overall, the county has just a 60.5% vaccination rate for polio. Now, uh, the statewide rate is 79%. And so uh, that is probably still low than other places. I should have looked up, for instance, Massachusetts. I apologize. Um, but I figured that that must be pulled down some by the bad rates in um, this county and actually in a couple of other counties as well in New York. Um, and so this outbreak is connected to one that's been detected in London and also in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it has now caused paralysis in a young person, uh, in the, um, uh, Rockland, uh, county in New York. And so that is really upsetting because for a person to be infected and paralyzed, this suggests that hundreds or even thousands of people are actively infected and shedding virus. And so it's very upsetting. Um, you know, I'll remind people who uh, don't remember, including myself, I've only read about it, obviously, I am not uh, of this age, but people lined the streets in the 1950s to be able to get this vaccine. It was considered a miracle. It was one of the most important vaccines we've ever developed. People were so happy. I mean, the fact that people up until that point had the chance of ending up in things like iron lungs it's just, it's, it's so frustrating to me to know that there are people out there who could take a vaccine that would prevent them from getting this and they just won't for ideological, uh, reasons. And that is so frustrating to me. Um, and again, it's not about religion uniquely. We've found that out in the last couple of years that there's lots of reasons why people will uh, buy into vaccine uh, hesitancy. And, you know, I mean, I, th I think that obviously Andrew Wakefield still has something to say or to pay for in uh, respect to this. And so people who would otherwise maybe have, um, you know, personally found a way to do it despite their religion probably won't now because, the lies about vaccines have become so prevalent in so many places that they just will no longer be able to overcome um, their own already, you know, hesitant um, understanding of whether or not they should do it. And so this disease is, this this kind of disease is actually, um, it comes from the oral polio vaccine. So um, initially, when the vaccine first came out, it was a, you basically took a oral vaccine that was a reduced um, or kind of neutered version of the virus, but it wasn't a dead version. It was still alive. And so if you ended up with someone who had this in a large population of people who weren't vaccinated, it can mutate and basically re, uh, 
develop the ability to cause sickness and paralysis. So it re-evolves those abilities and then infects someone and causes them to have paralysis. And so the U.S. and the U.K. no longer use the oral vaccine. Ours is now a, um, it is an injectable and it does not contain live virus anymore. Um, There is still some use of the oral virus in Israel, but um, we don't actually know yet where this um, virus originated. I would suspect it is in Israel just because they still have oral vaccination there, but we'd have to wait for um, more information. Now, polio was supposed to be eradicated from the earth by 2020, but geopolitical issues have allowed the disease to continue to thrive in parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, We've talked about this before, obviously. Um, But in the U.S., there is absolutely no reason that anyone should be infected with this totally preventable disease. Okay, that is enough for tonight on the Infectious Disease Watch. Um, I really hope that someday I can stop spending almost half of my show talking about infectious diseases. I know I could not, but... I think that it's important to, um, you know, continue to talk about it and continue to keep an eye on things because it's important to know about them because they directly affect um, us as people who are dealing with the um, exchange and um, infectiousness of these diseases. Okay, so like I said, we're going to move on now. Hooray! (laughs) And so we're going to talk about more biomimicry for the moment because I really like biomimicry and I also like robotics. So biomimicry in robotics, fun times. So we last, uh, we talked last week about a glove that is based on octopus tentacles and is uh, hopefully going to be developed more towards soft robots. And so this week, I wanted to start out by talking about a new kind of quote-unquote heart designed for soft robots that could replace the current electronically powered pumps that are rigid and bulky and often have to be decoupled from the robot, leading to energy leakages and decreased efficiency. So researchers at Cornell and the U.S. Army Research Laboratory have combined hydrodynamic and magnetic forces to produce a pump that is rubbery and deformable and can provide soft robots with a kind of circulatory system that mimics animals. These distributed soft pumps operate much more like human hearts and the arteries from which the blood is delivered, said Rob Shepard, Associate Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering in the College of Engineering, who led the Cornell team. We've had robot blood that we've published from our group, and now we have robot hearts. The combination of the two will make more lifelike machines. And so Shepard's Organic Robotics Lab has developed a host of different items related to soft robots and soft materials, including stretchable sensor skin and other items which are focused on potential applications in the field of 
patient care and rehabilitation. They've developed soft robots that can walk, crawl, swim, and even sweat. The new elastomeric pump was created by using a soft silicone tube fitted with coils of wire, or solenoids, that are spaced around its exterior. Gaps between the solenoids allow the tube to bend and stretch. Within the tube is a solid core magnet surrounded by magneto-rheological fluid, a fluid that stiffens when exposed to a magnetic field. This keeps the core centered and creates a crucial seal. By By manipulating the magnetic field, the core magnet can be moved back and forth like a floating piston in order to push fluids such as water or low viscosity oils in a way that allows for continuous force and without jamming. Such a system is essential for soft robots, which require a circulatory system in order to store energy and to power their movements. We're operating at pressures and flow rates that are a hundred times what have been done in other soft pumps, said Shepard, who served as the paper's co-senior author with Nathan Nathan Lazarus at the U.S. Army Research Laboratory. Compared to hard pumps, we're still about 10 times lower in performance, so that means we can't push really viscous oils at very high flow rates. The team conducted experiments which included large deformations of the heart and measured the performance parameters for the ability to custom tailor future robots. We thought it was important to have scaling relationships for all the different parameters of the pump so that when we designed something new with different tube diameters and different lengths, we would know how we should tune the pump for the performance we want, Shepard said. The paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science with lead author Yoav Matia, a postdoctoral researcher in the lab. And so obviously not getting as much as those hard uh, pumps, but what you don't get in efficiency of pumping, you might get more of in ability. So for instance, to be able to push into a smaller space or something like that, where you're really able to have the most important thing be that ability to deform rather than to have pure power. But I think obviously they will still be able to do more development and may yet be able to get something that is comparable to hard uh, pumps. Okay, so it's that time when we should take a short break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we are going to talk about crab eyes. So that's pretty fun. All right, please uh, do continue to listen. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, 
P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I said, we are next going to talk about giving robots advanced vision by creating sensors that are based on crab eyes. So the aim of designing robot eyes based on crabs is that crabs have the ability to see both above and below the water. Like most animals that spend time both uh, above and below the waves, obviously. And so most existing systems only work either above or below water because of the diffraction differences in how light flows in um, air versus water. So think about the, um, you know, ubiquitous putting a um, straw into a glass of water and seeing the image change. And so, yeah. Now, most existing systems that, again, only work one way, and those that are designed for amphibious viewing 
do not have a full 360 degree view. So an international team from the Institute for Basic Science, Seoul National University, Guangzhou Institute of Science, MIT, and the University of Texas at Austin recently created a new vision system that achieves both amphibious viewing and a 360 degree view of the surroundings. And so their paper is published in Nature Electronics. Previous works, including our group's research on wide field of view, cameras were always at fewer than 180 degrees, which is not enough for the full panoramic vision. And they were not suitable for changing external environments, Young Min Song, one of the researchers who carried out the study, told Tech Explore. We wanted to develop a 360-degree FOV camera that can image both in air and water. They specifically modeled their artificial eye on that of the fiddler crab. Fiddler crabs can view a full panoramic view of their surroundings without having to move their eyes and body. They do this with the help of ellipsoidal eye stalks and compound eyes with flat corneas that have a graded refractive index profile. And so the team used a flat camera lens to mimic the crab's eyes. If you use a conventional lens with curvature for imaging, its focal point changes when you dip the lens into water, Song explained. On the other hand, if you use a lens with a flat surface, you can see a clear image regardless of ambient conditions. The fiddler crab living in the intertidal region has this kind of flat surface of its lenses, and we just imitated this crab eye lens. Simple. <laughs> the team created a spherical structure that is covered by an array of flat micro lenses with a graded refractive index and flexible comb-shaped photodiodes. The micro lenses allow for the retention of their refractive index regardless of the external medium, water or air. Basically, in other words, the light focuses on the same spot despite the medium. To the best of our knowledge, it is the first time to demonstrate amphibious and panoramic vision systems worldwide, Song said. Our vision system could pave the way for 360-degree omnidirectional cameras with applications in virtual or augmented reality or an all-weather vision for autonomous vehicles. So several tests were conducted to see how the eyes performed. The tests were quite successful, and they hoped to deploy them on robots in the near future. Now, they were able to achieve a 300-degree horizontal visual field, which is why um, they say hope to get to 360. Um, and then they were able to do a 160-degree vertical field uh, in both mediums. So that's pretty amazing nonetheless. And the current model is just two centimeters in diameter, making it quite adaptable to different circumstances. In our next studies, we will conduct further engineering to achieve higher resolution and superior image imaging performance, Song added. In addition, we are still interested in developing a new type of camera with unique imaging features inspired by other animal eyes. So that's pretty cool. Um, I want octopus eyes, personally. Um, <laughs> not just because octopi, octopi are amazing or octopuses are amazing. Um, it's because uh, they have just literally better designed eyes than we do. 
And so, or better evolved, I should say, uh, eyes than we do. Every time someone tries to be like, oh, people are, you know, intelligently designed by God. I am like, mm, consider the eye. <laughs> like, if there is a higher being that uh, properly designed any kind of animal, it is the octopus. <laughs> that That is my feeling on the subject is that, um, yeah, cephalopods are definitely uh, better designed than humans are. That is my hill I will die on. <laughs> Anyways, so that's very cool. I enjoy uh, all sorts of biomimicry because why reinvent the wheel when evolution has already done lots of incredible and amazing things? Okay, we're going to switch now to a completely different kind of uh, material science slash technology. This time we're going to talk about ancient tech for a minute. Now, I was actually hoping to slot this in last week as a sort of counterpoint to the story about our high-tech octopus-inspired gloves, but I didn't have time. Archaeologists in the Mariana Islands have discovered what they think of, they, what they think are, an ancient tool for luring and capturing octopus. The lures consist of cowrie shells with incised holes that would have once held a cord. Similar devices have been found throughout islands in the Pacific, but these are most likely the oldest yet found, dating to around 1500 BC, some 3500 years ago. Um, now, I've taken a couple of tangents tonight, and I apologize, but I do want to take one more tonight. So, um, you may have noticed that I did not do what I normally do, which is change that notation from BC to BCE. Uh, taking it from before Christ to before the Common Era. Um, and I wanted to explain why I did that, because I think it's a really good reason, and it's not my own. So I want to give credit where credit is due. So I listened to a podcast called Our Fake History, and the host, Sebastian Major, talked in one of his episodes about why he still uses BC and AD, even as a um, actual like teacher in in, um, I think he teaches in high school. And so he noted that papering over the system with new nomenclature doesn't really address the arbitrary and Western chauvinistic nature of the system. It simply sets it aside. And so, um, I've come to believe that he is right, that it's important to acknowledge and problematize this system rather than simply ignoring it with cleansed language. And so, you know, I'm I'm totally excited about renaming most things that are rooted in our raced, racist and often Christian-centered past when those things are less deeply meaningful in their hegemony. Um, and so, for instance, renaming a butterfly or a bird after someone who was, uh, for instance, a racist or eugenicist, so taking the name away from them and giving it a new name, I think is great, perfectly acceptable and good. Um, but that's different from a system that is still, even if you change the name based on a specific kind of um, just cultural dominance, I guess is what I'm trying to find. Um, I mean, hegemony is probably the right word, but 
Um, and so it's important to recognize that we still live in a racist and Christian centered present in the West as well. Um, and so even if we sugarcoat it with terms like the common era and before the common era, the, because the date that demarks the common era is still rooted in one particular civilization's idea of time. Our idea of what is and isn't civilized is also rooted in this particular idea of time. And in fact, it's one of the main pillars in things like, for instance, ancient aliens tech theory, that people in such early times couldn't possibly have had technologies like this because they were uncivilized. But that's a, a lot part based on the fact that we don't really have a good grasp of deep time. Humans are really bad at understanding time. It's why we have such bad issues with climate uh, crises and all sorts of things because humans just can't conceptualize time in a way that is meaningful and um, without a lot of work. And so even on human timescales, we have a problem with time. Um, I was watching uh, someone debunking a flat earth video earlier. And one of the things that they kept talking about was how the stars don't move and how, how can the earth be moving if the stars don't move? And it's because they don't have an understanding of both the deep time and the deep, um, directionality and the hugeness, vastness of space. It's just beyond their ability to think about it. It's not even, in some ways, it's not even their fault because humans are like that. We just have a hard time visualizing these kinds of things. It's why we have a hard time with, you know, huge numbers of people who die in tragedies, why we have a really hard time understanding why on earth people are so upset about, you know, the 1%. Um <laughs> you know, that once you get into the word billion, it has no meaning. And so people just don't get it anymore. And so th this whole time thing is just really weird and idiosyncratic. And we really should come up with a better system. Um, you know, for instance, it's especially confusing when we count backwards for BC and it almost feels like to me sometimes like it's some sort of countdown to the birth of Jesus, um, whether or not he lived or was born during that time or not is neither here nor there. Um, I am a Jesus Christ agnosticist as far as an actual person. Um, you know, there are atheists who are uh, mythicists who believe that he is just completely a myth and there are um, you know, atheists who believe he did exist, but that he, you know, obviously wasn't the quote unquote son of God. I am agnostic on this. I have no idea. Um, and I don't really, frankly, think that it's important to have a dog in that race. Um, and so, yeah. Um, so it's just important sometimes to like take a pause and remember how things that we don't think about often are still really rooted in weird, very like Christocentric ways. And again, this is not a diss on any person who is personally Christian and who has deep faith in Christianity. Again, as long as you're not trying to um, legislate me to have to follow your rules, I don't care if you're just a 
friendly Christian who, you know, thinks Jesus was a cool dude. I'm a hundred percent cool with that. And, you know, you don't need my permission, obviously, but I, I don't have any issue with that. You know, I, I have very much given up my like cranky atheism a decade ago. <laughs> um, and so, you know, one of the other things is the Mariana Islands. We actually, uh, the U.S. had, uh, basically been using that island as a de facto sweatshop um, for many decades. And um, luckily, they finally passed laws uh, that were able to stop the practices. So um, the garment industry basically was eliminated by 2009. But for decades, I remember, um, you know, I remember Democrats, um, I can't remember his name, he ran for president at some point, bills something, and he would like be putting in bills every year about how like we have to keep the, um, you know, the labor laws exempted in the Mariana Islands and in Guam um, because basically we use them as a sweatshop. Um, so your made in USA uh, garments could have been made in a sweatshop in the Marianas uh, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, Guam is still a U.S. territory with basically no rights. Um, you know, the people there are citizens, but they don't get to vote. Um, they don't have elected representatives, much like Puerto Rico. But I think Puerto Ricans get to vote for the president. Maybe. Uh, I'm failing civics class today. I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, it's it's frustrating. And I apologize that this uh, show is a little bit all over the place today. But uh, let's get back to the actual um, story. And so the lures were found on the islands of Tinian and Saipan. And again, they're around 3,500 years old. That's back to the time when people were first living in the Mariana Islands. So we think these could be the oldest octop octopus lures in the entire Pacific region, and in fact, the oldest in the world, said Michael T. Carson, an archaeologist with the Micronesian Area Research Center at the University of Guam. The paper, published in World Archaeology, is authored by Carson and Xiao Chun Huang from the Australian National University in Canberra, Australia. I really try with um, Chinese and Japanese names and other um, Asian names, and I apologize. Uh, I am obviously not an expert at all in pronunciation of anyone's name. <laughs> um, and so the lures consisted of, again, cowrie shells from a type of sea snail that is a favorite food of octopus. They were connected by a fiber cord to a stone sinker and hook. Seven sites have yielded lures, with the oldest excavated in 2011 from San Halome near the House of Taga in Tinian, and in 2016 from Unai Bapat in Saipan. The artifacts have been known. We knew about them. It just took a long time considering the possibilities, the different hypotheses of what they could be, Carson said. The conventional idea what we were told long ago from the Bishop Museum in Honolulu was that there must be, these must be for scraping breadfruit or other plants, like maybe taro. But they don't look like that. For instance, they don't have the serrated edges that most scraping instruments do. 
And so Carson realized that they matched octopus lures from Tonga dated to around 1100 BC, some 400 years later. The question now is whether the ancestral Chamoru people invented the tools when they reached the island or whether they brought the technology from their previous homeland. So far, no such artifacts have been found in any of the areas thought to have been the origins for the Chamora people. If they did create the technology after having reached the island, it would once again prove that humans are smart, adaptable, and capable, no matter their level of availability of technology or the color of their skin. (sighs) It tells us that this kind of food resource was important enough for them that they invented something very particular to trap these foods, said Carson. We can't say that it contributed to a massive percentage of their diet. It probably did not. But it was important enough that it became what we would call a tradition in archaeology. And so the next step is to try and confirm if they indeed invented them in the Marianas by searching for objects like this in Taiwan and other islands of Southeast Asia from which their ancestors traveled. Now again, from which their ancestors traveled in like dugout canoes in the middle of the Pacific, like shout out to Polynesian and uh, Southeast Asian uh, explorers, like they were way more impressive than like Spanish explorers in their giant ships full of, you know, safety <laughs> and with their mapping techniques. Um, and so one of the coolest things I've ever seen, I know I mention it every time and I apologize, is a map made by someone who is Polynesian that is just this like, it was just made of reeds and it was this map that was like of like ocean currents and oh my God, I can't even describe it. And it was just so impressive. And um, yeah, definitely lots of impressive minds in the Polynesian area, just like everywhere else on earth. Very intelligent people, Probably some really silly people too, but also really intelligent people. Okay, so now we are going to pop back to modern technology and talk about a different innovation in food gathering. Researchers in China have developed a new genetically engineered strain of rice that has a yield increase of 40 to 70%. That is huge! The problem with plants is that in order to grow them, we need nitrogen fertilizers. The whole green revolution thing, which we're not going to argue about tonight. We get nitrogen fertilizers from natural gas. Again, again, the whole uh, Franz Haber or Fritz Haber, uh, you know, the world's savior or the world's worst villain. Um, Again, argument for another day. Um... (laughs) Just in case you want to look these things up, that's why I mentioned them. And so obviously natural gas is a greenhouse gas, which we should be phasing out, despite what energy companies might say to the contrary. Natural gas is not clean energy. It is not. Anyways, again, the new strain of rice has more grain per branch. Each grain is bigger and denser, and the plants flower early. 
Conventional crossbreeding usually yields less than 1% increase in yield. Um, and so this is pretty amazing. 40 to 70% is crazy. The researchers focused on transcription factors, proteins that control the expression of a set of genes that are usually associated with a single physiological function. In this case, photosynthesis. The team looked at a set of 118 transcription factors previously known to regulate photosynthesis in rice and maize and searched for those that also upregulated in response to light and low nitrogen levels. When they found one, they would generate transgenic rice lines that made an abundance of that factor. The test crops were then grown in three settings, temperate fields near Beijing, tropical fields in Hainan province, and subtropical fields in Zhejiang province. Over the course of three years, the rice plants exhibited enhanced photosynthetic capacity and improved nitrogen use. They had larger chloroplasts with more chlorophyll than typical wild rice. They are wild rice types, um, wild type rice. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Usually when we talk about the original version, they um, it's called wild type. <laughs> That is the scientific word for it, um, or nomenclature for it. They also took in more nitrogen more efficiently in their roots, which allowed for increased yields even in less nitrogen-rich soils. They also tested the rice by growing it hydroponically and in rice paddies, and the plants did equally well. Now, they also found that this technique worked for different uh, strains of rice, so they used um, originally, they used the um, Orza sativa, which is apparently the uh, plebeian rice in China. And then they used it on uh, japonica, which is a fancier rice. And it worked well for both of those. And they also did it in wheat and Arabidopsis, which is um, a model plant for biological research. And all of them had really good results. Now, most of the genes are related to response to salt, drought, and cold stresses. And so, uh, yeah, all of those are good things. Now, the earlier flowering genes did cause the plant to flower earlier, but they were dwarfed and had lower grain yields. And so this is most likely due to the fact that they were grown in isolation from the other traits, which meant that the plant didn't have time to build up energy stores before producing the rice. Now, they suggest that gene editing could be used to create a variety of crops that could have these properties. And of course, this could not come at a better time as we're facing increased issues with land reduction, natural disasters, and increased populations. Okay, that is all of the time we have for tonight. I did have one more story, but I just don't think I have enough time to give it its proper uh, telling. I do apologize. I know that I went off on uh, several tangents tonight, um, but I hope that it hasn't been too uh, off-putting, and I do appreciate anyone who uh, listens to this uh, program because I do really enjoy making it, but um, sometimes it is harder than other times. 
Um, and so it makes me like amazed at people who can create uh, long form essays on YouTube, for instance, who have full time jobs. Maybe their jobs are a little less stressful uh, and occasionally like demanding than mine is. Um, it's definitely the. Uh, unfortunately, I tend to be, I am an expert in the um, system that we are moving to as much as one can be an expert at this moment in it. And so I am being asked to do a lot of things and to teach people how to do a lot of things. And it's uh, a little stressful. So uh, this is still one of my favorite things to do. But sometimes I'm just like, oh, no, I have to uh, get to this. And it's it's hard. So I really appreciate you sticking with me and um, being here every week. If you are, I appreciate that very much. So um, as always, this is Evidence-Based Radio, and I hope you have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.